0: Last Tram to Fleetwood A Filed Coast Mystery by Michael Davis. Narrated by Karen Esposito. To be fair to the Filed Constabulary, Roxanne Lennox's immediate understanding of who the body was and how it had washed up on Russell Beach must have looked mighty suspicious. But that was Roxanne. Her self assurance could easily be mistaken for arrogance. I'd been around journalists long enough to know that their arrogance was often a front for insecurity, bravado, obscuring self-doubt. Roxanne's case was extreme, and was, in fact, the reason we were sitting together in the Art Deco Café in Stanley Park, her career in television research at Salford's Media City having been temporarily suspended by what some would call a nervous breakdown. But which she only referred to as a bit of bother. Her bit of bother had prompted her to take a sabbatical, and naturally she'd come to stay with me on the coast, hoping that the restorative powers of the Irish Sea and a good gossip with an old ex-colleague would put everything right. It was a habit of a lifetime for me to pick up a discarded copy of the Gazette from a nearby table and start scanning it. Roxanne contemplated her builder's tea. What's that story? She asked, leaning forward from the opposite side of the table and placing her cup in its saucer. Which one? That one, about the pier jumper. My eye went immediately to the lead story on the page, announcing the discovery of an unidentified body on the beach. Its intro speculated entirely without evidence as far as I could make out, that the body was that of a jumper. An unfortunate suicide from one of Blackpool's peers, who had been carried by the tide a few miles further north and deposited on a granite groin beyond the playing fields of Russell School. That's no suicide, said Roxanne, reading the story upside down. Does it say what the cause of death was? I flick through the article for any mention. No.
1: Must be drowning, though, surely. She shook her
0: head. I wasn't sure, but she seemed to have turned a little paler than she had been five minutes earlier. My guess is they'll find a blunt trauma to the back of the head. She'll have been dead before she hit the water.
1: I was surprised. There had been no mention of the body's gender in the article. How do you know it was a she? Roxanne gave an almost imperceptible shiver
0: and picked up a teacup again. She cradled it with both hands and leaned back in her chair, looking out of the window beside her. I let the subject drop and put the paper aside. We finished our afternoon tea and were just heading out into the winter sunshine when a voice from behind stopped us.
1: I wonder if I could have a word, love.
0: We turned to find a stocky, balding man of about 40, smartly dressed, with a heavy grey overcoat and black leather gloves, approaching us from the cafe entrance. He looked directly at Roxanne, the stare almost confrontational. What's your name, love? Roxanne, even in her current fragile state, was
1: not someone to be pushed around by a stranger. Who the hell are you?
0: By way of a response, the man reached inside his coat and drew out a warrant card. Detective Inspector George Hall. Filed CRD. What do you want? Well, for starters, your name. I took half a pace towards him, stepping protectively across Roxanne. She's Roxanne Lennox, and I'm Bell Travis. How can we help you? Miss Lennox? I'd like you to accompany me to the station for questioning. Questioning about what exactly? He never dropped his gaze from Roxanne for a second. About murder. The inspector had made a fundamental error, of course. He'd half heard a conversation in a noisy cafe, put two and two together to come up with something north of double figures, and gone straight for the nuclear option. It didn't take more than a couple of hours for Roxanne to be released, and then it was something considerably stronger than tea that we were drinking. How did you know that it wasn't a suicide? I asked, tentatively, as we started on our second Cosmopolitan of the night. Roxanne sipped a drink and looked thoughtful.
1: You remember that true-life crime show I worked on when I first went
0: to Salford? she said eventually. I remembered it all too well. It was Roxanne's first job in television after training on my newspaper, and it was supposed to be her break into the big time. What followed were eighteen dismal months of late-night phone calls and sporadic trips to the city to mop up the emotional carnage she suffered researching some of the world's grimmest murder cases. As a stepping stone into TV, it was brutal. And we both heaved a sigh of relief when she landed a much cosier job behind the scenes on a daytime magazine programme. What about it? I did a story about something very similar on that show. It was in the States, but the basic narrative was pretty much the same. In that case, it was a blow from a baseball bat, delivered by an aggrieved husband who then dumped the body off the boardwalk in Atlantic City. And you think that's what's happened here? Something like... I thought hard about it. The newspaper may not have known that the body was female, but the police certainly would. And, if there had been a killer blow from an angry partner, why were they questioning random women in cafes rather than arresting him? It made no sense and I made the mistake of telling Roxanne so. Okay, don't believe me then. She snapped, and I immediately recoiled. I should have known better than to challenge her so abruptly, especially in her current frame of mind. I tried placating her. Look, there's an easy way to check this out. I've still got good contacts at the coroner's office. I'm sure I can find out if it was a man or a woman, and why they think it's murder rather than suicide. Roxanne relaxed a little. Sorry, Belle. I didn't mean to bite. It's just that I don't take kindly to being taken in for questioning by the police. And they might have let me go for now. But if that inspector's suspicions were aroused simply by overhearing a conversation, I'm damn sure he's not going to let it go until he's dug around in my private life a fair bit. What are you going to do? It's obvious the police aren't looking in the right place. So...
1: I don't have much choice. I'm going to have to find the killer myself.
0: To my surprise, my contact at the coroner's office was decidedly reticent about giving away any information the next morning. It was all I could do to get my mole to admit it was indeed a female victim and that the police had ruled out suicide on the spot when the body was found. She flatly refused to tell me why. When I pushed further... I was met with a stony silence, which strongly suggested Roxanne had been right about the blunt trauma, or at least something similar. I was starting to see why she was nervous. Over a ready meal in my flat that evening, I told her the meagre details my informant had provided. Just as well I got more out of mine, she said, half
1: smiling. Come on then, spill the beans! I've had an interesting chat with a grieving widower. I almost choked on my glass of wine. You found the victim's husband? Roxanne nodded.
0: How the hell? But I could see from the expression on her face that she was not going to divulge that little nugget. It was enough for now to know that Roxanne's instincts had been spot on and the poor unfortunate who'd been found on the shoreline at Russell An unemployed 32-year-old by the name of Alice Lincoln was the victim of a violent attack.
1: Could it have been the husband? I pressed. Did he seem
0: genuinely upset? Give me a chance, said Roxanne. I only spoke to him for ten minutes. I know I'm good, but you can't expect me to solve the case on day one. I had to concede I was pushing my luck on that one. But Roxanne hadn't confined herself to tracking down the victim's husband, Dean. She'd also uncovered intriguing snippets of information about a number of other factors in the case. Not least that Alice Lincoln was in the habit of taking the tram to Fleetwood at all hours of the day and night. Did she get the tram the day she was murdered? Roxanne began stacking empty crockery on the table. Last one that night. She'd done it before, apparently. Her husband said she'd get on at the North Pier about half-past eleven, go all the way to the ferry terminal, then stay on the tram for the last run back again.
1: But why? She shrugged. He said
0: she loved to ride the trams, found it soothing if she couldn't sleep, or just wanted to get out of the house. Apparently, she thought going north was a more interesting journey than along the Golden Mile and back. Wasn't he worried about her safety at that time of night? It must have been late by the time she got back into Blackpool. 12.53 at the pier, I've checked. Of course, we've only got his word that she was tram-obsessive. And I suppose he'd only got hers. There may be other explanations.
1: Such as? Who knows, Belle? A second family in
0: Bispham? A secret lover in Cleveley's? The Lincoln certainly didn't seem like Romeo and Juliet from what I could see of the flat. No loving couple photos. None of your usual signs of domestic bliss. So it could have been him. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to need much more than we've got so far if I'm going to get myself off the hook with Inspector Hall. Roxanne's words came back to haunt her just two days later, when the intrepid detective came knocking at my door wanting to speak to her again. She's not in at the moment, I said, with all the politeness
1: I could muster. Can I help? He
0: pushed past me without waiting for an invitation. Maybe. Where is she? I'm not sure that's any of your business. Does it make a difference if I tell you she's still being investigated in relation to a murder? I sat down at the dining table, and Hall followed suit opposite me. Again,
1: without invitation. She's gone to Stargate. The tram terminus? What's she doing there? I couldn't resist poking. The job you should be doing, perhaps. And
0: what's that supposed to mean? Isn't there a link between your murder victim and the tram to Fleetwood? His face reddened and he stood up briskly. This conversation is over, Miss Travis, and I'd be grateful if you'd tell your friend to keep her nose out of police business. She's in enough trouble already. I led him to the door and opened it, smiling. I don't feel inclined to tell my friends what to do, thank you very much. If you wanted to know so badly, you'll have to do it yourself. He was over the threshold already, and I felt no compunction in closing the door on him before he could formulate a reply. I watched through the frosted glass as he paused on the step and I wondered if he was weighing up whether to knock again. If so, he thought better of it and his silhouette stomped away after a few seconds. I felt bad about letting on to Hall that Roxanne had gone snooping around the trams but she took it in good heart when she returned a couple of hours later. I don't care if Hall knows where I've been or what I'm doing, she said
1: feistily. I've got nothing to hide. But has anyone else? I pondered aloud. How did he get on at Stargate?
0: Roxanne's face dropped a little. <sighs> nothing much to report, unfortunately. I did think I might be able to persuade someone to show me some CCTV footage from the last tram on the night our victim died. But nobody was playing ball. Let's just say... I was encouraged to go through the official channels. It was a dead end. At least, that line of inquiry seemed to be. Fortunately for Roxanne, I'd had better luck researching other avenues. The theory that the body was carried north from Blackpool, I began, what about it? Doesn't stand up? How so? The currents certainly move in the right direction, but it would be extremely unlikely for the body to be carried so far if it went in the water only a few hundred yards from shore. Such is the end of a pier. Precisely.
1: So, poor Alice was dumped somewhere out at sea and just happened to wash up at Russell. Or, Roxanne
0: looked keenly at me. Or what? I turned my laptop to face her. I'd spent much of the afternoon digging up historic cases in an attempt to verify the the carried-by-the-tide theory. Instead, as well as debunking that notion, I'd found something intriguing. In the 1940s, a young woman's body had been found in the dunes between Blackpool and St Anne's, after a particularly strong storm surge. Initially written off as a tragic accident, more careful investigation revealed the whole thing had been staged to look like a drowning, and a jealous lover was executed for murder. Not quite the boardwalk in Atlantic City, but it does offer the possibility of alternative explanations. Great work, Belle, Roxanne said grimly. Now, what are you doing tonight? We met again in the crowded bar of the beach house. As I arrived, a group were just getting up from a table overlooking the North Pier, so I indicated to Roxanne who was waiting to be served and made a beeline for the freshly vacated spot. A couple of minutes later, she fought her way through the throng and joined me, a large glass in each hand. Just a bit of a warmer, she said, sitting opposite me. It's going to get cold out there."
1: Out where exactly? "All in good time, my trusty
0: sidekick. First, we need to pull our information. I had to confess there wasn't much information to pull, not from my side at least. My online trawling into the life of Alice Lincoln had proved much less fruitful than my earlier quest for tidal patterns, and I couldn't offer much to add to what we already knew. Roxanne, on the other hand, had come up with armfuls of new material, including the fact that Alice was not local. A native of Yorkshire, she and Dean had evidently pitched up in Blackpool looking for casual work the previous summer. She'd found some as a chambermaid in a local hotel. He'd picked up a job in a garage, and between them they'd scraped enough together to stay through the winter, and do it all over again in the spring. Roxanne refused to be drawn on where she'd gathered her information, but she had also confirmed another significant fact. The couple's marriage was distinctly
1: rocky. It didn't look good for Dean. So why haven't the police taken him in for questioning? I asked.
0: Roxanne frowned. Assuming that's true, and they haven't paid him a visit since I spoke to him, I'd like to ask our friendly inspector that very question. As far as means, motive and opportunity are concerned, Dean seems to fit the bill perfectly. And if my theory about a blunt instrument is correct, I'd love to know what it was. My guess would be a wrench or a hammer. Something a car mechanic might have innocently to hand? She nodded, then glanced over my shoulder towards the door. She downed the remains of her drink and grabbed her coat from the seat beside her. Come on, we've got a tram to catch. I followed her out, slipping on my own coat against the breeze that had strengthened and chilled since I'd arrived. Two paces behind her, I trailed across to the north pier, reaching the stop, just as the distinctive bell of an approaching tram rattled behind me. I looked at my watch. 11.30pm. The tram was surprisingly busy for that time of night. Roxanne selected a double seat near the back of the rear section, and I sat heavily next to her. From our position, we had a good view down most of the length of the tram, and I could see maybe twenty people sitting or standing between us and the front half. The conductor was close to our seats, so Roxanne asked for two returns to Fleetwood, and handed him a fistful of change before he meandered forwards. She seemed to be trying to keep a low profile, so I did the same, burying my head in my phone and sneaking glances down the tram whenever I could. What are we doing here? I whispered out of the corner of my mouth. Roxanne shushed me into silence and fished in a coat pocket for her own phone, which she began tapping discreetly. Moments later, my device buzzed in my hand and I opened her text. He's on the tram. I looked up at her in surprise, but she gave no sign of acknowledgement, staring instead at her screen. Furtively, at least I hoped it was furtively, I began scouring the passengers nearby to see who she could be talking about. A group consisting of two middle-aged couples were chatting on the closest seats, and beyond them sat three or four individuals, either contemplating the phones or staring impassively at the darkness outside. Further down, a group of younger lads were sharing cans of beer and laughing loudly. One man on his own, wearing an unusual red jacket, seemed a little nervous as his eyes flicked round the tram. Could this be Dean Lincoln? Roxanne's
1: suspicious
0: widower? I risked another glance at her. But she was giving nothing away. As the tram eased its way northwards, the number of passengers steadily thinned. The lads had got off at Bispam. And by Cleveland's there were no more than six people left. One of them, the man in the red coat. I sensed Roxanne shift beside me and heard
1: her whisper, Be ready. Ready?
0: Ready for what? If it was Dean Lincoln up there ahead of us, what on earth was he doing retracing his wife's steps? The question was even more acute if he had indeed killed her. The old trope of murderers returning to the scene of the crime was the stuff of storybooks. It never really happened, for obvious reasons. The tram rumbled on into the stretch between Cleveley's and Fleetwood, where a narrow strip of houses was the only light in a chasm of darkness. And then it all kicked off. Nearing Russell School, normally a disused stop outside of school hours, someone pushed the button. I berated myself for not spotting who it had been, and when the doors opened, nobody got up. For several tantalising seconds I stared ahead. Then, as the air brakes on the doors puffed their distinctive noise, the red coat leapt to his feet and rushed out of the door in front of him. Roxanne gave me a hefty nudge and I followed, grateful that we had stayed close to the rear doors. As I tumbled out of the tram, Roxanne on my heels, I caught a brief glimpse of another passenger right at the front of the tram, stepping calmly off between the closing doors. Before I could find my feet and try to get a better look, I felt Roxanne's firm hand take my elbow and steer me rapidly and decisively to the left, away from the tram stop and back along the tracks into the darkness. At the southern end of the stop, the railings led us out onto the main road, where Roxanne took us another thirty yards before crossing and athletically vaulting a wooden fence that bordered the school. She signalled me to follow, and I clambered over, much less gracefully, wondering how the head teacher would feel about two middle-aged women trespassing on his grounds in the dead of night. Keeping low, we crossed a tarmac car park and turned right, hugging a tree-lined fence in the direction of the main entrance. In spite of Roxanne's clear desire for secrecy, I risked a question. Where did they go? She pointed straight ahead of us, where the path continued, before veering left towards the school's sports centre. It's the route of the wire way, she whispered. It leads down to the sea. Safely back on legal public footpath territory, we stood more upright, but our tracking of the two figures ahead of us remained as clandestine as we could manage. Where the path turned, we hesitated. Roxanne peering round the corner carefully before beckoning me to follow. The route crossed another small car park, then passed through a gate marked with a small yellow disk that was just about visible from the scant light from a couple of nearby buildings. The Sports Centre stood, huge and dark, to our right, while to the left, an ancient school building crumbled silently, the orange glow of Blackpool silhouetting it in the night. Ahead of us lay a field of blackness. I could just about make out one of the figures in the distance, but as my eyes grew accustomed to the dark, they peeled off to the right and headed away from the track, across the field. It was hard to
1: tell, but I thought they were wearing a red coat. Where's he going? I whispered. Home, I should imagine. Roxanne hissed back. If you live in one of those houses along the seafront, the school is probably your nearest tram stop. But isn't that Dean Lincoln? You didn't say he lived at Russell. It isn't, and he doesn't. That was just some bloke going home. I was really confused,
0: but Roxanne was not in the mood for chit-chat. She quickened her pace and ploughed on into the darkness. As we reached the end of the dilapidated building, the crenellations of the main school, with its miniature towers and spires, stood out against the glow. And then, suddenly, we were under attack. From the wasteland to our right, a figure came crashing towards us. Roxanne, on that side of the path, must have seen it coming because she checked herself momentarily and the lunging body missed her, arms flailing desperately. Less nimble than Roxanne, I caught most of the weight of the attack my right arm taking a blow from a clenched fist. But I managed to avoid the full impact, and as I stumbled backwards, I watched the overbalanced body hit the ground hard and roll up the slight slope to the wire fence at the school boundary. It came to rest, grunting, as Roxanne ran over and straddled the shoulders, pinning them to the earth with an ease. The body writhed and groaned, but it was going nowhere. From the muddied face... I heard a voice I knew trying to speak. Roxanne Lennox, I'm arresting you on the charge of obstructing... Detective Inspector Hall got no further. Roxanne punched him hard in the mouth. Bell,
1: call the police. I was bewildered. But he is the police.
0: I spluttered. Not for much longer. As the pinioned inspector struggled under Roxanne's body weight... She freed one hand and rummaged in a coat pocket. She pulled out a small black cylinder and pointed it at her prey. When she pressed the button, a powerful light blinded him and he jerked his head to one side. Recognise this, Inspector? she said, leaning forwards to put her face close to his. You should. It's yours. And guess where I found it?
1: My curiosity got the better of me. Where?
0: Right here on this path. Just where he dropped it when he was lugging Alice Lincoln down to the sea. Out of nowhere, Hall erupted. You're crazy! Those things are ten a penny. It could be anyone's. Standard police issue Defender Lumos. Inscribed with the initials GH. I hardly think so but we'll let the forensics team find your DNA on it to put things beyond doubt. You bitch, he yelled, and struggled again. But Roxanne Lennox was not about to let him go. True to her word, she'd found the killer herself.
1: A week later, Roxanne and I walked the stretch
0: of the coastal defences from Cleveleys to Russell. The sea was calmer than it had been for days, and with the tide approaching its low point, the wooden breakwaters were exposed and forlorn. As we neared the first of the newer rock groins, we stopped at a break in the wall and looked inland, where the grey-green turrets of Russell School were outlined against the fells of Poland. The path of the wire way, where Roxanne had flattened a quarry, ran away up the fence line towards the sports hall, and I marvelled again at Detective Inspector Hall's arrogance in believing he could drag his victim's body several hundred yards unseen, and dump her on the rocks in an attempt to make it look like suicide. The more unlikely the scenario, the better he thought his chances would be of getting away with it, said Roxanne. Besides, he probably killed
1: her somewhere on the path. He wouldn't have had to move her far. When did you
0: know it was him? (sighs) Hard to say exactly. I had serious question marks about him when he came to your place on his own. Any genuine investigating officer would have a backman with him to interview a suspect, so I knew that something wasn't right about him. And as soon as I met the husband, Dean, I could tell straight away that he wasn't the sort to kill his wife. Then, when Dean told me he suspected Alice might have been seeing someone else, you didn't mention that little gem.
1: Roxanne looked at me quizzically. Do you always tell me everything? But what made you think it was Hall? Of all people.
0: Just a sneaking suspicion at first. The way he was behaving and running the inquiry. When I found his torch in the undergrowth on the path, I knew it was no coincidence. He could have dropped it while he was investigating the crime though, couldn't he? He could. But if there was a more sinister explanation, then I knew he'd be back to look for it. I had a hunch he might retrace the last journey to try and find it. It's just been a question of waiting for him to catch that tram. We turned back towards the sea and, for a long while, stared out across the water. The turbines of the wind farm broke the line of the horizon, catching the sun through a layer of cloud. How long had the affair been going on? Long enough for her to have become besotted. It was just a shame that Inspector Hall didn't share her feelings. For him... She was a diversion, so when she threatened to expose everything to his wife, she made herself a liability. I thought more about what we knew of Alice and her life. All those times she was catching the tram to Fleetwood. She was meeting Hall. That's why it was strange hours of the day and night to fit in with his different shift patterns. He couldn't risk being seen with her in his car, so we made her get the tram to come to him. It's a bit depressing what a woman in love is willing to do, isn't it? I looked at Roxanne Lennox, the strong, talented woman I'd known since she was a cub reporter on the paper, and wondered, not for the first time, what she'd had to put up with over the last few months. She'd tell me when she was ready, I knew, but the curiosity was killing me. We watched the gulls sitting on the wind for a few more minutes then
1: headed south again. I drew my coat tighter around me. A chill had come into the air.